visions of these big tigers and lions, you know, hugging him. And it was just really magical, but they had this one black panther um, that absolutely they could get, they could barely feed him. They couldn't even get near him. He was so aggressive and they were afraid they were gonna have to put him down. And somehow they found out about Anna and they brought her to the, to, to the place to try and communicate with this black panther. And again, they're very skeptical. And um, if you Google spirit, um, um, spirit uh, animal talker, I think, you'll see this little video that shows her going in. And she basically says to them, first of all, he's very angry because of the way he was treated. Um, then he's um, curious about what happened to these two cubs that came in. And the guy that was uh, the owner of the refuge looked at her just in awe. Like, how did she know that? Because he didn't tell her that. And he said, well, he really wants to know. And so the guy told her and then she communicated it. And then she said the last thing was, she, he does not like his name. His name um, was the name of the devil and he was not a devil. And so she asked what he wanted to be called and he said he wanted to be called spirit. And um, then they went back afterwards. Hello, anybody and everybody. My name is Cody Wilkinson, and welcome to episode 24 of CodyCast 101. One of the biggest issues our world faces today is a rising mental health crisis, especially among our youth and elderly. Like most people, I've had my fair share of mental health woes, and I've found some level of solace through the practice of meditation, yoga, long walks, and bike rides. But recently, I've found a new and interesting way to take some time for myself through the practice of Qigong. Healing Circles Lanely is an online platform where people can come together and dedicate an hour of their week to self-care. My guest today is the guide of our weekly group, and alongside our partner, Akbar, we have a brief discussion about the week's topic, then settle into the mountain pose, occasionally some breathing exercises, and a myriad of other practices related to Qigong. I want to thank Kate so much for her time today. Today's episode was very wholesome and down-to-earth, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, thanks for listening, folks. You can follow me at CodyCast101 on Instagram so you never miss an upload, and say until the end here, quote that Kate picked out herself. Now, without further ado, please welcome Kate Dussault. Welcome back to CodyCast 101, everybody. Today I'm with my Qigong leader or guide, if you will. Um, Kate, why don't you introduce yourself? Good morning, Cody. Good morning. <laughs> I'm Kate or Catherine or Katie, depending on when you have met me during my lifetime. Um, I met Cody through a dear, dear friend of mine, and she introduced him to our Zoom classes that we've been doing since um, September of last year. Um, I co-facilitate a program called MELT, which is a multi-experienced learning to transition and transcend. And it's a little bit of Qigong and yoga and breath practice and brain plasticity and some various types of um, ancient practices that help us kind of become aware of our bodies. And it's really based in a um, self-awareness and a self-practice. So Cody's been showing up um, every week and it's been awesome to see him. 
blossom in these practices. Yeah, it's, it's really been great to have a space to uh, just forget about everything else and, you know, focus on yourself and do some self-care. And with the pandemic and everybody's mental health going crazy, it's, it's been really good for me. So thank you. That's awesome. I'm glad it has been good for you. It's been good for me too. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so my first real question is just what is Qigong? Cause I feel like you can do it, but like, what really, what really is it? And what's the goal behind it? And what is the, there is some science behind it, you know, what's, what's behind the layer of what we're doing. Okay. So we'll start by first the meaning. So qi, um, qi in the Chinese or um, chi in other traditions means energy. And gong just means practice. So it's an energy practice. And it originated in China. It's over 6,000 years old. Um, initially, it was really taught um, through particular lineages of family. And it was very insular. So a particular family member would be taught the tradition and other family was, members were not even necessarily able to um, be taught that tradition. The, the person who was taught the lineage would practice it within the family, but then it didn't go really outside of that. And women were definitely not part of that because if a woman was taught a Qigong lineage in a family tradition and then went to another family, she could bring that tradition outside of the family. So it's an interesting way that it developed. Um, I was introduced to it in um, a couple of different ways. There's a woman out of um, Maui named um, Joanna Ananda. And she is a yoga teacher as well as a Qigong teacher. She studied in China with her prior husband. Um, and they studied tra traditional Chinese medicine and Qigong and yoga. And she's traveled to India. And I met her through um, my longtime teacher, Ramdas, who was a, um, I could go down a whole other lineage here. I'll try to stay in line. But Ramdas is, is a spiritual teacher who brought a lot of Eastern philosophy, um, more in the yogic tradition from India uh, to the West in the, in the 60s and 70s. Um, and he passed in 2019 at, um, in his 80s. Um, so we used to go to his retreats and I met Joanna through the retreat and through the morning practice of Qigong. And then we became really good close friends and um, she started teaching me on a private basis. Um, and then I was really interested in it and I really wanted to become certified. Um, and I found another instructor or teacher by the name of Dr. Wenyan Sung who is um, in Bothell, just outside of Seattle. He was taught as a child um, at the age of four by his great uncle. Wow. Um, and he was only allowed, he couldn't teach it to his older brother. It was very strict. Um, and as he got older, he was, he was really interesting because he was, his mother was Catholic, his father was Buddhist, and his great uncle was Confucius. So he said he learned really early that he didn't talk to each, to each of the family members about what the other one was teaching him. <laughs> That's a really um, diverse background. Wow. Yeah, it was incredible. So he ended up in Japan um, studying microbiology. Um, and he continued his Qigong practices there. And 
um, actually did some energy healing for some people and had some pretty interesting stories about how that all came down. Um, and then he got this, what he calls a chi mail. So part of what happens in Qigong is um, the, the sense of it is, is that we're all energy, like we're, and which is true. Science has now proven this, right? There's, we're atoms. And that means that every aspect of our being and every aspect of our world is energy. And energy is something we can work with in the body. And some people will be what they call energy healers and they'll work with other people's energy systems um, to help them um, certain ways. And he had all kinds of interesting, great stories about that. Um, he also then came to uh, Washington and worked for the University of Washington as a microbiologist and a um, geneticist, an epigeneticist. And as he continued to do his Qigong, uh, he was noticing that there were actually things happening in the body. It was actually changing some of the epigenetics in the body. Um, they did a study on um, type two diabetes and found that with Qigong, they were able to really help people wean off of the um, different medications. Um, and so he started the Institute of Qigong and Integrative Medicine. And that's how I found him. And I studied with him for the last, oh, probably three or four years. And Akbar has been with him for probably 12 years. Akbar is the person who co-facilitates my class that Cody takes. Um, yeah, I, my favorite thing about Akbar is the dragon in the background. <laughs> it's always cool to see that. He's got this big tapestry of a Chinese dragon in the background. Yeah. But uh, yeah. one of my favorite aspects of the Eastern side of medicine, I guess, is they have a more comprehensive focus on the whole body. And Western medicine is kind of focused on the physical side and then the neurological side. And they don't really connect the two in the same way that the Eastern cultures have for thousands of years. So when I first got into this, I, uh, so I kind of was convinced to do some meditation on my own. And I just, before bed, I'd meditate for like 10 minutes and it really helped me go to sleep because I had, I've always had some falling asleep problems. So that first really helped and it really calmed me down and it really gave me a space to like breathe, obviously. And then and that was 2019, like late 2019. And I've always done, I've always loved yoga. We did yoga with uh, some football practices during camp. Um, like one day a week, we do a yoga session to help us like stretch and relax a little bit. And I always loved it. I was pretty good at it because I, well, I thought I was pretty good at it because I'm really flexible. I'm like hyper flexible. So I can like, you know, being kicker, I can put my heel over my head, that kind of stuff. But uh, one, when the pandemic finally hit, I had to, I had to leave campus. I went to Pittsburgh uh, to live with my sister for like three or four months. And it was great. Uh, made had an amazing time with her, but I really got into yoga there where I found this, uh, what's it called? I think it's my peak challenge is what the thing was called. My sister was really into this like fitness program. So I did this, I did the yoga part with her. I did the whole workout with her, but the yoga part, I just did it over and over and over again and every night 
or every other night I do this like 30 minute yoga session and it was awesome. I loved it. So it really piqued my interest for a workout or a physical activity that wasn't a hundred percent go hard as you can in the gym with the weight room, you know, cause that's what I've been used to for 15, 10 years, you know, it's just that team football mentality of getting as strong as you possibly can, you know? So I did after football was over, I kind of was able to take a step back and get into some other things. And this is just a part of my exploration of my own body and my own mental space. And it's, it's been really cool to do this. So. That's wonderful. So it's so funny yoga. um, I like to say comes in different flavors. Like it's like ice cream. There's all kinds of different flavors of yoga. Um, And I think that there's this, a lot of people hear yoga and they are concerned about it because they don't feel like they're flexible. Um, And I'm also a certified yoga instructor. And I learned in a a particular tradition that was called Anasura, which is an alignment-based yoga. Um, And my teachers um, were Ashtanga, which is another very long lineage. They started with the Shtanga and then the Anasura lineage was actually kind of um, birthed in the 90s by a a gentleman by the name of John Friend. Um, And it was taught in a particular way. And we really focused on alignment, which you have been kind of experiencing what we've been doing some of that. And what we started to understand in that particular lineage is that some of the yoga traditions can actually cause more injury um, if people are super hyperflexible. And so there's this need to have this balance between what we call muscle activation and organic energy. So the two go hand in hand and they balance. Because if you get too flexible and um, then what happens in your joints and different things is then injury starts to happen. Um, And so there's this balance between the muscle and the organic or the flexibility. And I think that's where we've been working with some of your stuff too, Kali, is where where are the areas where you've created habitual patterns in your body um, that have now started to create um, injuries for you? And how do we unwind those? Um, How do we unwind it in a way that you are aware of, okay, now, my shoulder hurts, but maybe it's really related to my knee. Um, so there's some different ways that we start to become aware of our bodies and how we move our bodies and how we unwind patterns, um, especially athletes. I was an athlete too. Um, and as a skier and I had all kinds of low back issues and I didn't realize, um, that that was really related to my hamstrings because the skiers were kind of in a squat most of the time, right? So my hamstrings became really short and tight. And um, that makes sense because when they're short and tight and when you go to stand up and elongate, it puts pressure on your low back and your spine. So it took me some time to unwind those kinds of patterns for me and I'm still doing it years later (laughs) and still recognizing, oh yeah, I'm doing that pattern again. So yeah. that's the cool thing about these practices. The annoying thing is that once you realize what it is, that it 
it's a lifelong thing. Like you can never, there's no finish. There's no end to it. Cause if you stop doing it, then you're going to revert back to where you were, which was causing pain. So I'm glad that I'm starting young, at least, you know, me too. That's hopefully, awesome. hopefully it'll um, provide a long life for me. Cause my goal yeah. is to get to 2100. Awesome. <laughs> so in the Qigong traditions, they say that some of the early practitioners, they call them the practice of the immortals. And they had stories of people living in their 800, you know, to be 800 years old. Yeah. Um, and real life in China and in different parts of the world, there are people that live to be in their hundreds routinely. Um, there are areas in the world that they call um, blue regions. And there are regions where there's a higher incidence of people living over a hundred. And a lot of that is, I think, these different ancient practices that they, that they do. Um, (coughs) There's an island in Italy and Greece, I know, and Japan. Yep. Costa Rica. Uh, One of the, one of the Greek islands, all the, like the, the cultural thing that they kind of attribute it to is social gatherings around wine. So they drink wine with their friends, basically, is what they're contributing it to. Yeah. And I thought it was pretty funny. It is. So that it's interesting because science has now shown us that um, what's really happening is we're making changes to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the system as the, the rest, relax, and um, reproductive system. And they're showing ways to stimulate that. And um, community is a huge part of how you can help stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system that kind of helps your body really stay healthy. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that that's one of the things that they talk about. Of course, diets and, and breath and all those kinds of things are a part of this. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, the other part that I really found interesting, interesting was the book Breath. Yeah. We both read by James <laughs> Nestor. I highly recommend it. Uh, yeah. And it's the way I like think about my breathing now is every breath that I breathe through my nose is one extra breath that I get at the end of my life. Yes. And every breath through my mouth is a breath at the end of my life that you take away. So it's one less breath of the total breaths of my entire life. And it's a good reminder of like just reminding myself to breathe through my nose and like creating the habit. And once you do, it makes it a lot easier, obviously. But all the science and the stories that he told uh, about how we've rediscovered and lost and rediscovered and, and all these different breathing techniques that are incredible, like absolutely incredible, like how, what they can do to our bodies. And I, I, just, I just think it's like, that's part of the Eastern medicine. I attribute it to Eastern medicine Cause it's like what we kind of think about, you know, like there's no European breathing techniques. I'm sure there are, but very little. And we, we have a very interesting uh, comparison between the Western and Eastern cultures. I, I really like that. So I, I love that you brought that up because breath work has been a huge part of my life for a long time and I love it. So yoga has different breathing techniques. Um, 
they have the alternate nostril breathing and they have deep belly breathing and they have fire breath and those various things. So yoga has all kinds of breathing traditions. And then the Tibetan monks have all these different breathing traditions. And um, I've read that breath book like five times. <laughs> I keep going back and finding something oh. else. So last night I was reading it again and I came across, um, they were talking about the practices of the Tibetan monks that were way up in the Himalayans. And they were doing this particular breathing practice in the snow, basically with shirtless, they were you know, cold. Um, and there was a woman in the 1900s who, um, unusual in the 1920s for a Western woman to travel on her own, but she went out and traveled and she wrote a book about it and this particular breathing technique. And then of course it was lost and brought back and lost and brought back, as you say. And it's recently come back again in the nineties. You've probably seen the cover of Time Magazine of that guy that's covered, it has the beard and he's covered in ice. Um, I think he's Norwegian, um, Iceman. Um, and so it, it reminded me to check that out. So the smart, so last night I Googled Iceman and they had this um, YouTube video of him um, guiding this 11 minute breathing exercise. And I said, oh, this is awesome. I'm gonna try that. And it was so profound. <laughs> it was amazing. So I downloaded his app and um, Bill and I did it this morning again. And it's so incredible. So he has you do 30 seconds of um, pretty rapid breathing. And then um, you exhale and you hold for a minute. And then you inhale and you hold for 15 minutes. And then he has you go through the round again. And then you hold for two and a half minutes. Um, and then you relax and you do it again. Um, and the app I found this morning, I was like, okay, I'm going to try this out. And I didn't realize you were supposed to tap the app to get past the next one. And I realized, wow, I'm really holding my breath for a long time. This is really hard. What's going on? And then I finally opened my eyes and tapped that. And it was over three minutes. I had no idea until wow. I was like, wow, okay, I need to breathe. Um, and then he went through these rounds and it's just, um, it goes to both the idea of lifelong practice because here I am in my, in my mid fifties and I'm still learning. Like there's all these things to learn. And this was an ancient practice as well. That's been picked up by a, a modern person who's now put it on an app. Like it's crazy to me, but it's so yeah. cool. And every human being can do this too. There's literally yes. no limit to it. As long as you can breathe and have like the control of your body, like you're not a, quadriplegic maybe you like even quadriplegics i'm sure can breathe they can probably practice in this as well so it's one of those things that is common with every one of us yes it's true and in um qigong there's a lot of breathing practices as well um one of them that's my favorite is what they call skin breath and dr soon used to say that when they were teaching it in the old days they would hold people's heads under the water for long periods of time, or they would literally put them in coffins um, and until they learned to skin breathe. 
And he used to laugh about it and he'd say, well, I don't think we're gonna be that kind of punishment. I don't think Western culture understand. Yeah, <laughs> so not. It would teach skin breathe in a much gentler way. Yeah. One of my favorite techniques that he talked about in the book was the samurai. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they were when they had a leaf on the top of their nose or on their upper lip and they're lying on their backs and you had to breathe through your nose but if the leaf moved from the wind of your nose breath then you like failed you're, you're punished or whatever yeah. and i've i've thought about that a lot we're like okay how slowly and controlled can i breathe because a lot of the times we just kind of breathe and we don't think about it yeah applying that mindfulness to the breath is it's an interesting challenge for for you to do that's a really good point so um we're we are unconscious breathers um there's so many things that happen in our body that are unconscious and as westerners we've become even more unconscious in everything that we do right yeah we just go about our day we go to practice we you know whatever we do we don't have kind of a mindful tradition in our in our culture um and it's really an important aspect i'd say the mindfulness piece because as we become more mindful we can actually change our brain anatomy and chemistry um, and we tend to have this culture where we're highly activated in our sympathetic nervous system which is our fight flight or freeze and we're living in that system a lot we're moving all the time and everything's fast, email and this. And um, I'm, I worry about these younger generations that are on these video games all the time. And some of them that have these um, kinds of violence things because they're constantly activating that part of our body. And that's not a healthy system to be in over long periods of time. Um, and health issues are starting to arise from that. And Western medicine isn't quite understanding how it's all rising. They're starting to become more and more aware of it, which is really a beautiful thing. Um, But this is the conscious breath is a really powerful tool to both health, um, mentally, physically, spiritually, um, heart-wise. It is conscious breathing is really an interesting thing. Um, And I was introduced to that in another way. Uh, There's another woman who I adore, been with for many years. Her name's Macy Joseph. And she and her husband um, started doing research around dolphin therapy. And they were doing it with, um, she came to it because she was in um, stage three breast cancer. Um, And that's how she was introduced to it. And what's interesting is dolphin and whales are conscious breathers. They have to literally think about every breath that they take. Um, So they have a whole different way of being mammals um, versus us land mammals, right? Um, And what they started realizing, her husband was a doctor and he was one of the pioneers of biofeedback. And what he found was 15 minutes of dolphin sonar was like an hour of biofeedback in our brains. Um, They also found that it helped synchronize the left and right brain hemispheres and it started changing immunity. Um, And they started doing those trips in the eighties. And then they started combining them with yoga 
and breath and different Eastern um, types of traditions. And they were finding people were healing from pretty intense chronic cancers. And then they started doing the trips with individuals who experienced disabilities. Um, and my brother um, was disabled for almost 30 years before he passed. And we took him on several of those trips. And um, my husband and I have worked with individuals with disabilities for years. And we, we did several of those trips too. And there were some profound things that happened. And of course, we don't really know the mechanism. Um, we worked with some children with autism that were nonverbal and became verbal. Um, were very sensitive tactilely and um, could then be hugged. Um, we had some that couldn't really walk that then were able to walk. Um, it, it was just, it's amazing. So there's all these really profound things happening in the world that um, we're not really that conscious of and aware of. And I just feel so grateful that I've had these opportunities to kind of fall into these different ways of practicing and then being able to introduce it to other people. It's been great fun. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. And what you've done for me in the last few months. Um, is there a way you think that we could replicate that dolphin sonar or is it, does it have to come from the belly of a dolphin? You know, that is a really interesting thing. Um, I think that there are probably scientific stuff going on right now, primarily in the military, on how to replicate dolphin and whale sonar. Um, of course, they use it as an echo location, um, so it's how they it's how they hunt, it's how they it's fight. also how they communicate. That's right, and the clicking noises. It's it's a communication <clears throat> stuff. So I think we're just beginning to really understand the profound. Uh, intelligence of those mammals and those creatures yeah. and what was really a blessing I think of COVID for them was um, I read some articles early on um, especially up here in the Pacific Northwest we have um, several pods of orcas and also grays um, and what they were finding was that the grays started um, more sound and more song communication than they had in 10 years because the boat traffic had stopped because they could hear each other. Um, and the J-Pod, which is our local pod here, they also were starting to, to do more sound resonation. Um, and what humans have done um, to that whole species is really disturbing. Um, the, they're, they're starting to starve to death because they don't have enough food and, um, the boat traffic is, is really hard on them. And they actually did a difference between, they were trying to study sound and the uh, sound impact on these creatures, but they weren't able to find the silence and over COVID they did, and they were able to show, um, and again, you can probably Google some of this some of the dolphin research they did in 2020, dolphin and whale research, but they actually, you can hear the difference. And if we can hear the difference, you can only imagine what they must. Yeah. Um, so I think that as we become more conscious of our own beings, um, that allows us to bring more compassion to ourselves, that allows us then to bring more compassion to other beings and recognize that we have things to learn from them too. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the profound differences between Western and Eastern cultures is the Western culture has this idea that we are supposed to dominate nature and we're the superior being on this planet. So we have complete control and we have the right, dare I say, the um, <clears throat> necessity of dominating nature. Whereas the Eastern cultures live in much more harmonious lifestyles along with nature and the indigenous peoples in Native America and Central and Latin um, and South America as well. So I think that we need to come back to that. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about environmentalism and conservation because it matters, you know, how many, like I was a, one of my favorite people on the planet is Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's a astrophysicist. And he has this show on uh, National Geographic and now Disney plus called Cosmos, which is a sequel series to Carl Sagan, who did the Cosmos series in the eighties, I think. And the last episode was about of season two was about um, like the future of humanity and like what's going to come down the line. And Carl Sagan uh, famously drew this picture of what, what the future is going to be like in like 1950 or 1949 or whatever. And he was just laying in his room drawing like a picture and it was like 2080 or 1960, this happens, 1980, this happens. And so they did the same thing with a little girl today. And it was like 19 or 2040, we discover nuclear fusion, which allows us to take us, allows us to transport humans to the rest of the solar system. You know, in 2060, we decipher language of whales and orcas and dolphins. Surprise, surprise, they're really mad at us after all the stuff that we've like put them through. Like we, but they do have a language. And we know they have a language. We just, it's just so much more complicated than we can even perceive that, you know, it's, it, that's just one animal that has, and it took us a hundred, 200, 300 years to, to learn this language. But once we do, we're like, oh man, these are creatures. These are life forms on this planet, just like we are. The, like, I, I don't see a difference between me and a jaguar or a dolphin, you know, because for billions of years, millions of years, we all came up together. And now this is our time to dominate the earth and we have dominated the earth. And I think it's a good thing that we've dominated the earth, but we need to preserve what got us here. You know what I mean? Totally. It warms my heart to hear you say that, Cody, because um, it gives me hope that there's a future because people care, because so many people have not cared for so long. Um, and I'm a huge nature person, um, growing up in nature in the mountains of Colorado, and it was my refuge, um, and the connection with animals is very intense. And um, I know of people who are animal communicators and it's real. Um, again, you could um, Google online. Um, her name is Anna. She's South African. 
Um, and she did, uh, there was a whole documentary that was done on her. Not quite sure when it was, but um, the woman that did the documentary was a scientist and was very um, skeptical um, about whether this woman could really communicate with animals. And in the documentary, um, they show how she uh, made, was able to go into a, a, a troop of baboons that were being very aggressive towards humans um, because humans were in their territory um, and they were getting injured. They were getting hit by cars and those kinds of things. And so uh, they worked with a tracker and they took her into the territory where the baboons were. And she literally walked into the troop, sat down and they filmed this whole thing. And the, the alpha male was allowing her to do that, which is highly unusual. And then the babies started coming over and were grooming her. Wow. And she said that she communicates through them. The animals don't communicate through words, that they communicate through vision, like they send each other visions. And she was telling them um, through visions to stay away from that area because it was dangerous for them. And after she did that, the baboons did not go back into those areas. Um, she also did, um, there was a gentleman in Africa that was, um, he had a, a big cat rescue where he would rescue um, lions and um, panthers and all kinds of big cats from, you know, abusive situations where they'd been in captivity. Um, and he had, for the most part, he would be fine with them. Um, they literally became pets. You know, you, you could, they'd show these visions of these big tigers and lions, you know, hugging him. And it was just really magical, but they had this one black panther um, that absolutely they could get, they could barely feed him. They couldn't even get near him. He was so aggressive and they were afraid they were gonna have to put him down. And somehow they found out about Anna and they brought her to the, to, to the place to try and communicate with this black panther. And again, they're very skeptical. And um, if you, Google spirit, um, um, spirit uh, animal talker, I think. You'll see this little video that shows her going in and she basically says to them, first of all, he's very angry because of the way he was treated. Um, then he's um, curious about what happened to these two cubs that came in and the guy that was uh, the owner of the refuge looked at her just in awe, like, how did she know that? Because he didn't tell her that. And he said, well, he really wants to know. And so the guy told her and then she communicated it. And then she said, the last thing was, she, he does not like his name. His name um, was the name of the devil and he was not a devil. And so she asked what he wanted to be called. And he said, he wanted to be called spirit. And um, then they went back afterwards and found that he had completely, he now left his enclosure and he would roam the area with the other cats and was much more relaxed and they could feed him. Um, and she, it was just incredible. So that video um, is worth checking out. And that documentary is worth definitely checking out. And I, I know of some people, um, that I've had experience, direct experience with, um, which I can tell you a story about that too, but I'll let you interject if you'd like. That's incredible. Um, 
Wow. One of yeah. the things, one of the goals with this podcast is to return to a connection, like a human connection that we've lost in the last decade or so with social media and our phones and social isolation and anxiety and all that stuff. And it's just a, it's just a connection between a life form and a life form. And you can extend that to dogs. Every, you, you have a dog, you love your dog, your dog loves you. And you, you look your dog in the eye and you know, you know, there's, you, there's no like verbal communication, but you know, and there's no reason why that can't extend to every other animal. It's just, we've put restrictions on how we can think about other life forms on this earth because they're not like us. And we have consciousness, we have brains, we have opposable thumbs. Obviously we're better than every other life form. You know, like there's just accepted idea that we're the best, we're the, we're the most advanced thing that earth has ever spawned. Well, we don't know that first of all. And two, like what's the difference between us and a panther or a, or a dog or a dolphin, you know? There's, depends on how you look at it. Like obviously there's biological differences, but if you just look at life, we're all life. And I think that my generation, like you mentioned earlier, gives you hope. It gives me hope too, because I'm in the majority, I think, for my generation when it comes to this stuff. And one of the great things about everybody having a camera in their pocket is that it's shedding a light on the darkest areas of humanity. And we can address those now. And we're going through some social turmoil and it's gonna work itself out. But my generation does give me hope and it, it inspires me to keep on this path of trying to heal the world, I guess. And I, I can't, I'm not saying I'm gonna heal the world, but like yes, you are. my generation, you know, every generation replaces itself. And the lesson, you learn lessons from the previous generations. And the lessons that we've learned about the previous generations is kind of how to not go about living on this earth. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Um, I really honor what you say, Cody. And I think what's happened is there's been this um, belief that comes from ego that is without awareness. Um, and unfortunately, we just came through a very traumatic four years with um, an understanding of a president that was one of those people who didn't, who wasn't conscious uh, uh, in, or aware of any of these kinds of things. And unfortunately, there's still many people and the, and the country's very divided that way. And I think that really what needs to happen is we, we do need to understand and reconnect, not just one-to-one, um, -one, obviously. Um, there's those communications that need to happen. And then as you say, a broader communication of how we affect the earth and the other animals and creatures and beings that are on the earth. Um, and there are people that have been 
thus far in the somewhat minority in at least Western culture that know how to do these things. Um, they're there. Um, there's an incredible woman. I'll tell you a really story that when I tell people, I know the first thing they go is, yeah, right. Um, but it really happens. Um, so you mentioned our dog, Jax, he's a little poodle, right? So we um, adopted him in 2015 from a family um, where he had been pretty abused by the, the male in, in, the, in the family. And um, Darby can attest to part of this story too. So we brought him up from Denver to our place up in Winter Park and he was so skittish. I mean, we couldn't get anywhere near him. He would hide under the bed. He would hide under the tables. Um, he just, he was a very frightened little guy. So I had contacted a friend of ours, her name is Erin Wolfwalker. Um, and she is um, a vet, but she is beyond a vet. She has these ways of um, working with energy and communicating with animals. And I said to her, Erin, I don't know what to do with this. I've never had a dog that's been so frightened. And she said, well, dogs learn to bond with their packs through walking and through finding their territory. So start taking him on a bunch of walks. Okay, great, we can do this. So we got him a harness and um, you know, we just tried to walk him up the road. And at first he was super skittish and his tail would be down and he'd crunch and he would barely wanna go with us. And, but he would kind of know he was supposed to go. And then pretty soon after a few um, steps, then he kind of started loosening up. And so we did this one, one day one morning. And then Tim, our friend says, Hey, let's go up to uh, this part outside. Let's go to this, do this hike. This in this beautiful meadow and we'll bring our dog and he can then, you know, see what it's like to be out in nature and, and dogs. And maybe we can get him really comfortable. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. That sounds like a great idea. So we all jump in the car and we go outside to Granby Reservoir and we hike up to, um, I think it's Deer Meadow. And that's about two miles up from the, the trailhead. And we're just gonna do this mellow walk and we're going along. And the next thing you know, Jax is off the harness. And um, we look at him and Tim's like, ah, he's fine, don't worry about it. He goes maybe 10 steps. And then the next thing he takes off. And I mean, he's fast and Tim starts running after him which was the worst thing we could have done because of course he's in flight fighter free. So he's running and someone's running after him. So he's gonna keep running. So he gets to the road, the rest of us kind of make our way back. No, no Jax, no Tim. Um, then we see Tim coming down the road with a car that's hurting them. So Tim's walking behind Jax, Jax is walking in front of Tim. And the only thing I can think of was to open all the car doors, because maybe that was familiar territory and he jumped into the car. And then all of us made a barrier across the road, hoping that he would just jump in the car. Nope, he ran up the trail. And we lost him for two weeks at 9,200 feet in National Forest. Yeah. And it was insane. So we all tried to search for him uh, that night until it was dark, realized we weren't going to find him. So we made a bunch of signs. We called the, the forest service. We called the animal um, rescue 
um, they gave us permission to, to start searching for them. We formed a search party. We all went out. We had signs everywhere. Wow. Um, you know, lost dog. If you see him, please call us. So we go through this whole time, posted on Grand County Garage. People come out of the woodworks to try and help us find this dog. They offered live traps and they offer their basset hounds. And <laughs> I mean, it was, it was incredible to see how this community, they don't know us from Adam and they're coming from all parts of the county. Um, so we hiked in live traps. There was this gentleman that kind of lived in the neighborhood and it's like maybe four houses in this whole area. We, he immediately reaches out to us says, Hey, I'll go out every single day. I'm out every morning. I'm getting up at five in the morning and going out first thing to see if I can find his tracks in the morning. Meanwhile, I call Aaron. I'm like, Aaron, I don't know what to do. And she says, you need to call this other woman. Her, she is, her specialty is to find animals um, that are lost. And she, she's an animal communicator. I'm like, okay. okay. <laughs> and this is before I knew anything about the documentary about, anima, um, about Anna. And I thought, well, all right. And I said, is she local? She's like, no, she's in New Mexico, but she'll help you. And I said, all right. So I call her, her name's Ellen. I call her, I'm like, Ellen, Erin Wolf Walker referred me to you and here's what's happening. And she says, okay, um, what's his name? And I told him his name and how old is he? And well, generally this much. And here's kind of give her the whole story. She's okay. I want you to go put his bed by the trail side. And I want you to put um, some gems in the bed. And she tells me all these things to do. And I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to do it because I'm desperate. I want to get this little dog back. And I'm terrified that this 19-pound poodle is in the middle of the wilderness where there's moose and cats and coyotes and um, mountain lion and uh skunk. I mean, he doesn't know what he's doing and bears, right? And we're up, he's two and a half miles in the middle of nowhere. And there's thousands of acres. How are we going to find this dog? So Aaron says, okay, our, um, Ellen says, okay, now that you've done all that, I really need you to stay calm. I need you to meditate. I need you to regulate your breath. I need you to be completely calm because animals sense energy. And if they sense that you're anxious, you're, then everything around you is, is going to feel that anxiety and you need to not do that. Okay, hardest thing I can possibly do because I'm crying, right? This dog is lost, what am I gonna do? He's gonna... So I do my stuff and she's like, all right, now that you're calm, let's start walking. Because we have no idea where he is, no clue. So we start walking and she says, you're gonna come across um, a tree soon that looks like a Y. And I said, okay. And she goes, so just keep your eye out for it. Honest to God, Cody, we come up to this tree and I have a photograph of it. That was a burnt out tree that looked like a slingshot in the shape of a Y. And I was, wow, okay, there's something to this. I'm like, um, Ellen, I think I found it. She's like, well, take a picture and text it to me. So I did. She goes, yep, that's it. I'm like, she's in New Mexico. I'm in Colorado. 
how is this even possible? So I said, okay, now what? She goes, he's to the left of that. Do you see a trail to the left of that? I said, yes. She said, okay, let's go that direction. So we go that direction and she continues to do this the whole way. Okay, now you're gonna find this water. Now there's gonna be this, now there's gonna be that. And I'm thinking, this is insane, but okay, she's totally on it. And she says, okay, he's somewhere in this area. I can sense him, I know he's there. Um, let's just focus our energy all here. Let's focus where everybody is here. Let's put the live traps here. Let's just be in this area. And every day we'll come out and every day I'll start communicating with him and letting him know that it's safe to come out. I'm like, okay. So the next day we get a phone call from a mountain bike guy and he's like, hey, I saw your poodle and he described where it was and it was just down or just up the hill from where Ellen said he was. And he said, I tried to get close to him, but he wouldn't come anywhere near me. I'm like, great. Okay. This was a weekend. So we're like, all right, we know he's still alive. He's out there. And then that was my next thing. I'm like, Ellen, is he alive? What, you know, what are we doing? She's like, no, he's alive. He's alive. Um, Something might be wrong with his leg. I'm not sure. So she would have these things. Then I called the family from Denver weekend. And I said, um, I think maybe you should come up and see if you can help us because he's at least familiar with your scent and maybe he'll come. But don't bring the dad because that's who he's afraid of. And I won't go out because I want him to see if he recognizes your scent. And bring a bunch of stuff of yours, t-shirts, different things that we can have on the trail. And so they agree and they come up. And of course, the first thing they did was not pay attention to what we said about bringing the dad. So they're on this trail. We told them exactly where to go. Um, the mom's calling to him and um, he comes out. He sees the dad, turns around, takes off. I'm like, oh my gosh. So now we're all crying and I'm hiking up behind them with, you know, a little carrier thinking we would bring him home, but of course, nope. So they go back to Denver and we're now over a week and my dad's starting to prepare me for the fact that this dog is not going to survive. And um, one of the women in the national forest a uh, forest ranger, she gets a chip on her shoulder and says, hey, you need to start taking these signs down. I'm like, okay, well, we think he's still in here. She said, there's bears in here. There's no way. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I'm not giving up. So then um, Mike, this guy that helped us, who's been helped, we had to go in every day, twice a day, to bait the traps and then to let them go. And we were baiting them with rotisserie chicken from... King Supers, <laughs> because that's what the animal control people said. They got all the animals back from Katrina. Um, so when we would, the traps were often um, sprung, but nothing was in them. And we know that the coyotes were getting in there because there were coyote hair, but they weren't big enough for the coyote. So we keep doing this and we're almost two weeks in, it's the Thursday um, and Mike, the guy says to me, you know, I've been thinking about this. He's not gonna go into a metal trap. I'm gonna build a wood trap and we'll hike it in. Okay. 
So he builds this little square wood trap and drills holes in it. And he has this little pulley system where there's a, um, a piece of wood that goes down and then there's a rock so that when he goes in and his nose hits the, the stick, the rock drops and it drops the, the, um, the part of it that captures him. So we're like, all right. And we, we hike it in to where the general vicinity of where we think he's been and we bait the trap. And now I'm obligated to be in Denver for a family matter and it's the Thursday. So I organize a whole bunch of friends for everybody to go in over the weekend and check the trap twice, twice a day. And um, we go down to Denver that Friday. So we're two weeks in now. And uh, we go down to Denver and uh, my dad's like, honey, you really just, that there's no way that dog's alive. I mean, I, you just need to give up honey. And I'm of course crying and it's horrible. And I'm like, all right, dad, after the weekend, we'll pull the traps after the weekend. Just give me the weekend. I'll do it on Monday. It's like, fine. 20 minutes later, I get a call from Mike. And Mike wasn't supposed to be checking the traps that day, but he got this, he said, he just got this sense that he should go check the trap. So he went up and he called me and he said, hey, I think I got your dog. And I said, what? He goes, well, I can't really tell. We've got the holes in there, but it looks like black and it looks like poodle hair to me, but I don't really know. And I said, okay. He said, do you think he's going to bite me? And I said, Mike, I don't know. We had him for less than 24 hours before he got loose. And he's like, all right, I got gloves. I'll call you when I get him back to the truck. <laughs> okay. So... <laughs> We're waiting, waiting, waiting. An hour later, he calls me. He goes, I've got him in the truck. <laughs> I literally collapse on the floor, oh, just man. falling in tears. And we immediately are like, we're out of here. Yeah. <laughs> we get back in the car. It's like six o'clock at night. We zip back up to Granby. It's dark by the time we get there. Mike and Kitty have Jacks in their house with their two Goldens. And he's a completely different dog, like a completely different dog. He's been on his walkabout. He's calm. He's eating. I walk in the door. He immediately comes over to me. I pick him up and we've been like this ever since. And that dog will not leave me and I won't leave him. And he never, ever will run. I can let him off the leash. I can do whatever. He's always there. It was the most profound amazing experience. I hiked, um, I don't know how many miles in two weeks, but I was out twice a day, every day and being in nature and connecting to that and connecting in the way that I was taught by Aaron and, um, uh, Alan to be calm and really be present was incredible. And one morning I was out really early and I, I was looking down, I was in that meadow area and I was looking for tracks. And the next thing I know is I heard this big exhale from a large animal. And I looked up and there was a huge bull moose. And I thought, oh my goodness, because they can be very aggressive. Um, and I just completely calmed myself got into my breath 
And then I started doing something that I thought in the moment was completely insane. And I said, hello, Mr. Moose. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm looking for this small little poodle. He's black. He's kind of cute. You may not know what a poodle is, but he's just a small little animal. And I'm just here looking for him. And if you see him, would you please let him know that I'm safe? And I'm just going to slowly back up and I'm going to go that direction. And if you would be so kind to go that direction, that would be just lovely. And I just was slowly backing up. And then he, he literally, in that moment, Cody, I could see him look at me and I thought, oh, this is not good. And then I kept the breath, be calm. And he turned his head and he walked the direction I asked him to walk. And I walked the other direction and I got around the bend and I was like, oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> so it was cool. Wow. Uh, one of the things that people are really getting on younger people now in like how to succeed in the business world and how to be a good leader and all this stuff is emotional intelligence. Yes. And animals have an, a hyper awareness of emotional intelligence because that's how they communicate with one another. Right. You know? And something that I always try to work on, but what you just described is emotional intelligence with uh, communicating calmness and like not threatening vibes, I guess. Because if an animal thinks that you're threatening, that fight, flight, or freeze response is going to kick in. And if this animal's bigger than you, then it's going to fight you like a moose and moose are if you don't know one of the most dangerous animals in america i mean they're a bull moose like how tall was it you know i'm not really good he was huge that's all i can say yeah, like huge feet plus uh, I, I'm, I'm probably certain that he was he felt taller his legs felt taller than my whole body yeah but I'm sure during that whole experience, everything, because my fight, fight or freeze was also engaged because there was this hyper awareness um, and it was everything I could do not to want to just turn around and run, which um, probably would have been the worst thing I could have done. So I don't know, but he felt massive to me. Absolutely massive. Yeah. Have you seen that video of a hiker that ran into a a mother mountain lion in her cub wasn't that incredible i don't know how he did that i don't know how that mountain lion didn't attack i yeah they said later some scientists looked at it they said that she never was was never going to attack her whole thing was to scare him away from her brood yeah yeah but even yes. how, how the heck would you know that in that moment and it's made one wrong move nails he's he's done for you know that's that was crazy and that was a good example of that emotional intelligence like he did the right thing the, the perfect thing he could have done oh there she is he is, there he, is. He, he came by and put his nose on my on my leg Say hi, Cody. <laughs> i need a dog really badly i really need a dog 
they're such wonderful animals they really are anyway yeah you're right that was an incredible video yeah and it was great you know i have to say cody that i think that people that spend a lot of time in nature that it becomes intuitive that we have this emotional intelligence um and i think that's where we're unplugged in so many ways yeah and the more time we spend in the nature, the more plugged in we become. Um, and the more time we spend in these practices, Qigong is all about um, the fact and the realization that we are nature and that nature is within us and out of us. And we are the microcosm of the macrocosm. So when we spend these times in Qigong, um, or yoga or any of these mindful practices and in nature, we're literally tapping into the universe. Yeah. The universe is the coolest thing in the universe. And we are the universe. And we are a product of the universe. We are the universe experiencing itself. Uh, that's very profound. Couldn't agree more. Um, one of the reasons why I love skiing so much is that you're in the mountains, you know, you, you can go 40 miles an hour on skis and take the lift up. And then at the top of the lift, you just stop and look around and you're in the middle of this mountain range that's been there for millions of years. And I, I just, I feel at home when I'm in the mountains, you know, I, I love it up here. So I'm with you in the trees and um, there are so many times that I, I love to ski too. And I sometimes like to ski by myself a lot. Um, I, I remember when we were there, we'd go during the week, um, cause we were Seattle time, right? So I could get up early, go ski for two hours, come back and it would still be nine 30 Seattle time and have a full work day in, but I skied for two hours. Yeah. Um, and I get up in the mornings and I would go. And what I would do on the chairlift is I would actually do yoga chants. So I chant on the chairlift and then I get off and I would just look around and look at the trees and nature and the mountains and really be present in those moments. And I think um, it's a wonderful thing to even understand that while we're doing activity, we can still be present and mindful in this connectedness to the universe and yeah. that's around us. And that's one of the goals of practice and and yoga is the same thing and qigong and uh meditation are the th three outlets that i've di dived into and one of my goals with it is just to be more present and i don't know how many sayings or quotes there are about being present but every great leader, profound thinker, professor that studies the subject says, you're happier when you're present and you're not happy when you're thinking about the future or the past. That So depression is thinking about the past, anxiety is thinking about the future, happiness is thinking about the present. And with my generation, like we've talked about, uh, mental health has become this huge deal because of whatever factors you want to put into it, but, you know, trying to be present is a really difficult, but helpful and important aspect of living life. 
you know, and I've been trying to do my best to be more present. And when that, whether that's not having my phone on when I'm with other people or going on walks and just like admiring the scenery and the trees and the, and the mountains and the, the sunsets and just admiring the earth and our place in it or on it. And I, this, since moving here into the mountains, it's definitely been like the happiest I've been. So that's really cool. That is so wonderful. And I hear just, I love it. And I'm an ad in it, on it, of it, being of it. Yes. That, that is the present being as being of it. And it's interesting because every tradition, whether it's Buddhist or Hindu, or even um, some of the Gnostic Christian traditions and native traditions and Hawaiian traditions, every tradition has a practice around this idea of um, being in the moment. Um, and now our science is catching up to that. Dr. Rick Hansen, who has done a lot of um, work on brain plasticity and how we do become happy is, is literally learning to be in that moment. And um, Buddhist monks, Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a very famous Buddhist nun, monk um, who was a peace activist during the Vietnam, um, Vietnam War. He has these beautiful guided practices um, and poetry that um, talk about being present and how to be present and using the breath to be present. And he takes it into, um, we mentioned the abbot we work with out of the Monastery of Compassionate Dharma Club outside of uh, Morrison. They, they do a Saturday um, retreat for English speaking folks or a Saturday practice where you do a walking meditation and then you eat mindfully and it's all in silence, which is a, another really profound uh, practice is to become present when you're eating even, or when you're doing the dishes or those kinds of things. And I had mentioned Ramdas earlier. Ramdas uh, had a book and it became a very famous quote, be here now. And the book is called Be Here Now. Um, and it's a wonderful, uh, again, way to kind of practice and find ways to, to be here now. And Bill and I use that a lot, like when we're, oh, this is going on and this isn't going to happen or blah, 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 this is happening. And then Bill will say, you know, we just need to be here now. Let's just be here now. Um, and that's a wonderful way to bring yourself back into presence. That's, that's amazing. Uh, every other life form lives in the present, except for us. <laughs> you know? So brings it full circle um kate i could talk to you forever which means that we got to run it back and we got to do this again wow well, that'll be fun we'll have a good time maybe we can do it in person sometime yes that would be even better um and the other thing is if you're you're working with this healing circle right mm -hmm. you and akbar yeah you two should do a podcast and talk about all this stuff i mean you know what would be fascinating, Cody? So Healing Circles was started by um, Diana and Kelly Lindsay. They are the most 
incredible human beings. Some of the most incredible things I've ever met. Diana started healing circles when she had recovered from stage four lung cancer. And people in the community were asking her how she did it. And um, she did it through all kinds of practices and community and healing circles. And that's not even something we've even explored with you yet, but um, there's a whole way of, uh, and we're doing it online and now it's global, the global healing circles. And it's a place where people can gather in a circle. The idea is that when we were ancient, we would gather around fire and we would just be in community and talk and share kind of like this podcast, right? So imagine that you are having this with um, 12 people that are here and then there's a guardian and a host and we read a poem and then we just listen. There's no crosstalk, there's no fixing. There's just this being present and recognizing that we each have our own capacity to heal within ourselves. And we just listen to each other in a really respectful, kind way. So that's really what Healing Circles was and started as. Um, and it started with Commonwealth through Michael Lerner, who's an old actor, um, started around cancer, healing with cancer. Um, and then Diana, again, um, was instructed by Dr. Sun and was an instructor in Qigong with him. And then she brought Qigong into the Healing Circles Langley. And then, um, oh gosh, it's just last year, her husband Kelly ended up having brain cancer. And, um, was amazing. He, um, he would do this blog every day and everybody in the community would just be so anxious to, to read Kelly's blog and what he would have to say. And he had this way of, he said, I, I look at this. Now he was a cancer survivor from kidney cancer prior to that. And then of course went through the cancer with Diana of her lungs. And he said, I look at every one of these things with wonder and awe. And that's how he went through his experience the whole time with cancer. Um, at one point, he was trying to help people understand the pain. Have you ever heard of stinging nettles? It's this plant that's native to, North, to the Pacific Northwest. And um, they have these little tiny stingers on them. And when they get into your finger or something, when you are hiking, it's, it's painful. It's like this um, heat stinging burning sensation all at the same time. So he was trying to help people understand that. And he suggested that everybody sit in a, um, a thing of stinging nettles. <laughs> and he would go sit in stinging nettles so that he could recognize that the pain was just transitory, that it was not something that was part of him. It could change. Anyway, I could go on about these people, but they're incredible. So yeah. Healing circles is another thing to do. And Akbar and I are hoping when COVID starts to tame a little bit that we're going to open a studio and work with some of these things. And I would invite you to be our podcast master. Wow. I accept the honor. <laughs> hey, that would Thank be you. fun. That would be so much fun. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I really appreciate every, um, everything that you've done for me and for when your whole this community that you've created it's it's really wonderful so thank you yeah thank you i mean one of the things that akbar and i recognize is we only go so so far with technology <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah. then we need help and what's so lovely about the younger generations and you guys it's take up nature to you 
Yep. So that's awesome. And I, if it's okay, Cody, I may talk to Diana about seeing if we could do a podcast on um, healing circles and healing circles global. And you could interview some of these other incredible people. Yeah, I'd love to. Incredible things in the world. I would love to. That'd be great. Cool. Okay. I've got yeah. lots of people. I've got Joanna Ananda. She's my original um, yoga and Qigong teacher, um, was Ram Das's um, close friend, confident and therapist for years. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of folks we could connect you with. That would be really cool. Sweet. Well, I always end this with a piece. So would you give me a piece? Peace sign. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. And I'll give you a heart too. Thanks for staying with us for the whole show. Today's wisdom drop complements this episode very well. Three simple words from Ram Dass that carry so much weight between them. Be here now.